6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 through 40. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, don't get, don't impute New Testament etymology here, because we use the term, Paul uses the term flesh in a different way. Here it's desirable. It says it's being soft as opposed to hard. So in other words, giving you a heart of flesh here does not mean a fleshy orientation, as Paul would use the term. One's Greek, one's Hebrew, and I won't get into the, you know, the, the root words. The English is unfortunate because a, it can be confusing. What he's saying is he, 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 he views their hearts as hearts of stone. And he's going to give them a soft heart, not a hard heart. That's the idiom you and I would use. Okay. I will take away your hard heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a soft heart. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep mine ordinances and do them. Now you often hear, you know, I happen to believe, for lots of reasons I won't bore you with today, that the 70th week of Daniel and the church are mutually exclusive. Now we often read 2 Thessalonians 2, which implies that the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the world before, you know, with the rapture. Don't be confused that that is true, and yet it can be misunderstood. The Holy Spirit is not taken out of the world at the rapture. He is very busy post-rapture. All kinds of people are going to be saved in the tribulation and after. How are they saved? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't fall into that trap saying, gee, there's no Holy Spirit doing a tribulation. Wrong. He's very busy. He's got a lot to do. But the Holy Spirit was given in a very special relationship in terms of the church. And that's what Paul, who really understands this, blows him away, to realize that the Holy Spirit indwells us in a unique way. Unlike David, who could say, take not the, you could pray in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You and I can't pray that. Because the Holy Spirit's given to us, He's given without repentance. He can't be taken back. If your ministry gets to that point where the Lord's really upset, He'll just take your life. You're not unsaved, you see. Now, that very special relationship that the Holy Spirit, that we enjoy as members of the Church, when the Church taken out, that relationship comes with the Church. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit ceases to be busy on the planet Earth. Wrong. He's got all kinds of things to do. He's got two witnesses to deal with. He's got 144,000 to deal with. He's got a ministry of all kinds. And in fact, his spirit is going to be put within. I'm not saying this happens during the tribulation. I'm not going to get into that issue. But somewhere along the way here, in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, etc. The Holy Spirit's going to be very, very busy. So don't fall into that trap. We, we as uh, 
as church pr prophecy students can get awfully glib with these cliches. Be very careful of that. Okay, anyway, this is that passage in Ezekiel which has certain analogies, if you will, to the passage in Jeremiah. Both speak of the new covenant, both speak of the new heart, both speak of the, the laws being, and they're speaking obviously the same thing, what really is a, a, a new birth situation. Okay, uh, that sounds sort of understandable. What happened? This was offered to Israel. And they blew it. Not permanently. But they missed an opportunity, and because they missed an opportunity, that opportunity is given to you and I. And it's mentioned many places, but I'm going to just pick two gospel accounts to refresh our memories. We just finished recently Matthew, a study of Matthew. Let's refresh our memory of Matthew 22. Turn with me to Matthew 22, and uh, where Jesus answered in Matthew 22 and said unto them, uh, spoke unto them again by parables, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. A marriage for his son. We've got a bridegroom situation here, huh? He set forth the servants to call, them and, uh, to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Well, that sounds like the first chapter of John's gospel, doesn't it? He came unto his own, and his own received him not, right? Who were his own? Israel. Who did Jesus come to first? Israel. Did they come? No. Now let's go back to the parable here, verse 4. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them that are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come into the marriage. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and treated them shamefully and slew them. There was a servant, the messenger, saying, Hey, come to the wedding feast. They were slaughtered. The analogy, as you can probably perceive, are the prophets. Huh? Verse 7. But when the king heard of it, he was angry, and he sent, and I can imagine, he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up the city. Then he said, Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they who were bidden were not worthy. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. The people that were in, initially invited, they blew it. Okay, tough luck. Go out and get the strangers, the foreigners. Read that, Gentiles. That's what opened the door for you and I. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered them all, as many as they found, both good and bad, and, and the wedding was furnished with guests. That's just It's just a parable. Don't make too much of it, and yet, yet get the point across. There's another little incident here that I should, I, I should probably mention. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man who had not a wedding garment. So then, friend, how comest thou in here and have not a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him in the outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hey, that's kind of a tough wedding ceremony to attend, doesn't it? You show up in the wrong garb and you're in real trouble. Now, this is where, as often happens a parable, the parable is sort of punctured from the model to the reality. Because what the, this guy's really cast in the outer darkness, nothing analogous about that. That's like real. What's the point? You're probably wondering, I don't understand that. Well, if that's the case, you want to go get the math, get the tapes on Matthew, chapter 22, and we'll get into it. We get into all of that. But I won't, I won't tease you about it. Part of the thing you got to understand is the wedding garment was provided by the host. You and I are going to be there, and we will not be wearing our filthy, our righteousness, which is as filthy rags. 
or if you're going to be literal to the Hebrew, as used menstrual cloths. We're going to have what? Garments that he provides us, his righteousness, etc. This wedding guest was not attired in the righteousness of Christ, so he's out. You say, boy, that's a lot of technical mysticism behind that. Yes, that's right. The parables are designed that way. And there's a lot here, and, and, and to get into this more, I do indeed uh, commend to you the Matthew tapes to... to uh, to take a you know to, to refresh your memory if you are if you were with us or to to dig into it if you haven't been another parable it's almost the same but a little different let's let's turn to Luke I think it's fourteen Luke uh, yeah Luke fourteen uh, we have a a parable that is close and yet a little different we we'll pick up about verse fifteen and there's um, sixteen and they said to him, a certain man well let's see one of them sat eating with him heard these things. He said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then said he to them, A certain man gave a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they, with all that, but they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said to them, I have bought a piece of ground, I must needs go see it. I pray thee give me, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I have got to go prove them. I pray thee have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed the Lord these things, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. For the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is, yet there is room. In other words, there's room for more even. The Lord said unto the servant, Go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men who were bidden shall taste of my supper. And so same flavor, a little different, a little different, um, but, uh, but the same flavor of, of instruction, if you will. And uh, um, so this is Israel's rejection, if I, if I may put it that way, in, in the parables. Now, if it, it, is that... Is that just an interpretation, or is it for real? Well, let's, let's turn to the gospel according to Paul. It follows the book of Acts. It's called Epistle to the Romans. Okay? And uh, we got a lot to get out of Romans here, but uh, let's start with maybe Romans 9. Romans 9. This is difficult for me to deal with because there's so much in the epistles that deal with this. It's hard to extract just a few places. But uh, this idea of, of the Gentile having an opportunity because of Israel's rejection, permeates these, the, the, the Paul's letters, uh, especially chapter 9 in total. We could actually read the whole chapter uh, 9, which builds this case, but we'll just pick it up about verse 30. What shall we say then? And this is after building a very elaborate argument. Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, who followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, as it, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What rock is he talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. And from here we go, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 that deals with that in great detail, but we won't, we, won't get, we won't digress on the digression. That's probably getting a little carried away. Now, uh, Paul deals with this in great detail, um, the, uh, uh, especially in chapter 10. 
he will go on to build this whole idea of Israel having blown us. But I don't want to dwell on that particularly. I, but I do want to pick us up here a little bit about uh, Romans 11. There's a very, very important verse that Paul builds up. He points out that Israel had the opportunity. They blew it. That opened the door to the Gentiles. And he develops that in great detail and builds his whole argument on, on faith rather than works. But he comes back to the question of Israel. Because by now, if you're reading through the book of Romans, you're getting kind of concerned. Israel, yeah, they blew it, but does that is it blown forever? Is it over for them? No. And we'll pick it up about verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye would be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now we have this interesting phrase introduced here, the fullness of the Gentiles. Don't be confused by that phrase and confuse it with the times of the Gentiles. The unrelated issues. Well, I shouldn't say unrelated. They're obviously related, but they're different issues. The times of the Gentiles started with Nebuchadnezzar. The times of the Gentiles was the emergence of Gentile dominion on the planet Earth, and it was destined, prophesied by God to Daniel, and Daniel 2, and chapter Daniel 7, and many other places. Daniel 2 and 7 are overviews of the times of the Gentiles. They start with Nebuchadnezzar, and they can complete at the Antichrist. That's, that's an interval of, of, of history. It has been suggested. I don't know if it's valid. It's an interesting suggestion. As I've told you before, there are four 490-year periods in Israel's history. Not, not consecutive. We've talked about that. When we study the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, we know that's the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, the 490 years, are the fourth 490-year period in Israel's histories, each one of them being non-contiguous when Israel is out of favor. We've gone through that, haven't we? If not, it's on the previous tape, so I'll let you hunt for it. Um, it has been suggested that you take four times 490 years, and that's the same period the Gentiles have had. And if that's true, we're about up. And that's kind of an interesting idea, just, to, just to one of these... Intriguing observations. Don't know if it's valid, but it's provocative. But the times of the Gentiles are between Nebuchadnezzar and the Antichrist. This, the fullness of the Gentiles is a different issue. And the way I would visualize this, visualize yourself being the king that's making this feast that we read about in Matthew 22 or Luke 14. Take your pick. He's got a marriage feast that's set up. He's told the caterers how many places to set. You and I don't know how many places are set, but he does. He's paying the bill. The people he invited didn't make it. So he tells them to go out, fill my house, go out the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. He went for a while, got the lame, the these, you know, people. And, 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 and the servants say, hey, but we still got room. Okay, guys, go get them all. Go get the rest. How many did they get? Enough to fill the places that have been prepared. It's not an infinite number. It's a finite number. There is a number, maybe a large number, but it's a finite number. That number has a biblical label. It's called the fullness of the Gentiles. 
when the fullness of the Gentile comes in, Israel's blindness will be removed. Israel's blind right now. You don't believe it, go visit it. Here's a nation whose history is just established in the hands of God. You can go to the Israel National Museum in Jerusalem, over that far side, the national statement of its history. I remember when I first went to Israel, I was looking forward to going to the Israeli Museum. Because I want, I figured I'd love, because I, I was on this tabernacle kick in those days, I was going to build a model, so I wanted to see what they had there. I searched it for almost all day. It's a huge place, all kinds of fabulous exhibits. No evidence. Oh, by the way, it's the history of Israel from prehistoric day to today. You got fossils and, you know, those kinds of things. And you can go through the different rooms and see their art and see their collections and all kinds of fabulous museum, very well endowed, lots of money, well done, fancy, super stuff. There's no model of the tabernacle in it. There is no evidence of the religious history. Oh, they have some some art exhibit, you know, some some things from various synagogues and Torah thing. You know, they have some some artifacts, but not in a sense of chronicling their spiritual history. You would think that even a secular historian of Israel would record this peculiar thing that led them through the wilderness, this tent and you know all the stuff that's in the Torah, as a just as just a historical record, not in there. Israel is gathered in the land under the banner of secular humanism. Oh, there's some religious groups that create all kinds of problems, extremists of all kinds, extreme orthodox, this, that, and the other thing. I won't get into that. But they're a minority. They're a difficult minority as far as the parliaments through this Knesset is concerned. But it's, uh, but it's a minority. They are blinded. They are blinded to their own heritage. They don't recognize that they are God's chosen people in the true sense of the term. There is an event that's going to rattle their cage. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe the event. And that's when the Soviet Union attacks them and the Soviet Union gets put on its ear. And it's done in such a dramatic way, God says, that they will there realize it's not their own prowess or their military skill, which is outstanding, all those good things. It's none of that. Six-day war, put them on an ego trip. The Yom Kippur War, they won, but beat them up a little bit. They're tired. You can go through their history, and they're, you know, they're, they, they have a, a, a right to be proud of their military. They're the best in the world, best trained, resourceful, they make more with nothing than you can imagine. The technology is getting better all the time. They're really, they are outstanding. But the victory that God has in mind in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is so dramatic, they will recognize God's hand in it. It won't be some ego trip. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 is all about. It speaks of the missiles and the launchers and all that stuff. Don't be confused with bows and arrows. That's King James confusion. The Hebrew words were translated by the King James in the terms they understood, swords, bows, and arrows. The Hebrew says missiles and launchers. Um, but the point is, that's when that happens, the blindness of Israel will be removed. When is it removed? When the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's why I believe, like many, that the, that the fullness of the Gentiles will be completed prior to the Soviet invasion of Israel. Now, when is, the, when is the fullness of the Gentiles come in? Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm, I've been fascinated by this for years because, you know, I could never figure out why Satan gives a hoot about you and I. 
you know, if we come to the Lord and, and we become saved by trusting the Lord, counting what he said as true, that, okay, we've done it. We're saved. What, 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 what skin is that off Satan's back? I mean, why would he care? I mean, he not, might not be pleased about it, but why is he so vigorous? I can never really relate to that other than he's psychotic. You know, sin does beget. You know, he's, been, he's had a chance to get sicker and sicker over eons, so he's, he's really sinful. Sin, sin is a you know gets is, is a corrupting disease, and he's had a long time to get a very advanced case of it. So, okay, you can you can dismiss some of this. You don't look for logic necessarily. I guess that's probably fair. But you know, there's another insight. The fullness of the Gentile is a definitive number. Only the Father knows the number. There was a time when Jesus Christ could say, "No man knoweth the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven." Not the Son, but the Father only. Strange remark. I thought the Father and the Son were one. I thought they knew the same thing. They ultimately do. And of course, after the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Jesus Christ, read the first sentence of the book of Revelation. The revelation is not to John, it's to Jesus Christ. Who gave it then to John to translate to us? The Father revealed more fully what was coming. As part of a contract they made before the world was formed. Jesus Christ and the Father had their deal before Adam sinned. Adam was no surprise. God knew he would and had already provided his redemption, the everlasting covenant between the Father and the Son. But anyway, there is a number that the Father has ordained to be in the church. That isn't the number of total saved. There's others that are saved that aren't in the church. There are Old Testament saints that were saved. Is Moses a member of the church? No, he was saved in the Old Testament. The church wasn't formed until after the, it had to be after the resurrection. When was Moses saved? Or, you know, even pick your list, right? There are people saved. Do we often get that confused? There are people saved before the church. There'll be pe people saved post-church. And by the same basis, by grace, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, don't be confused. But the ecclesia, the church, is a very special, provocative group revealed in Scripture, and, and we take it for granted because we're in the middle of it. But the more you study the Scripture, the more you realize we're beneficiaries of a very unique relationship. But it's not infinite. It's fine. There is a number that makes the fullness of the Gentiles complete. Now, from the time, from the day of Pentecost on, people became saved in the Ecclesia, right? The fullness of the Gentiles were being added to. Somewhere, there is a counter tabulating them. None of us really care what the absolute number is, but we do know every time someone's saved, the number is incremented by one. Satan does too. He doesn't know what the number is. But every time someone trusts the Lord Jesus Christ for, for their redemption, that number is increased by one. Satan doesn't know what the number is, so every time it increments by one, he has to do a catch his breath you have, for 1,900 years, he's been in shock treatment. <laughs> for 1,900 years, every time somebody accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't know that that ain't the number that finishes it off. And the larger it gets and the closer we get, the more we see world events migrate to that scenario that the prophets have talked about, all of them, to varying degrees, the more he knows that it's getting close. And he also knows, in the words of Revelation, that when that when the trigger is pulled, he has but a little time. He knows that there's a very well-defined countdown 
that starts to trigger off. But in the meantime, it's all on hold. You know, T minus something and counting. But when that counter's complete, hey, then we go into phase two. And a whole different thing starts to happen. The church is over. We're caught up with him in the cloud. Is dealing with planet Earth's not over. All kinds of wild things happen. Bizarre, wild, awesome things. I think we, we, we really suffer from an inability to fully comprehend men seeking death and not finding it. I mean, it's just, the, 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 the ecology on this Earth is going to be bizarre, different, a tough time. And uh, now, during once the church is gone, what happens? Israel's blindness is removed. She fulfills the destiny that was prophesied for her in the Torah and all through the prophets. She will be God's instrument, successfully witnessing to the world about his redemption. Well, I probably should complete this idea. She will ratify her position. She rejected him in Matthew 12, which led, of course, to the whole events of the rest of the book of Matthew. She will acknowledge her iniquity and ask him to return. On the third day from that request, he does. That's recorded in Hosea. We, we, we deal with that. Zechariah chapter 12. Maybe we should touch on this. So keep your finger here. And let's turn to Hosea. Let's take the last verse of Hosea chapter 5. and gives you a hint of this. No, I'll get to Zechariah. Excuse me. I'm going to start with Hosea. I figured we'd stop on the way. Okay. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. The Lord says, I will go and return to my place. That's an interesting phrase. That means he must have left his place, huh? In order to return to his place, he must have left it. Here's one of these cryptic little phrases tucked away in a prophecy. I will, re I will go and return to my place for how long? Until they acknowledge their offense. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.